Hey everybody and welcome to Breaking Biotech. Thanks for being with me here today. My name is Matt and if you like the show you can help out by clicking the like or subscribe button. You can also donate using the Patreon link in the description below. So I'm glad to be back and I've got a great show for everybody today. We're going to be talking about three different topics. I first want to start with the update we saw from Curis and we'll get into all of that. They, they provided an update in their AML, MDS program, as well as their Vista program, and the stock sold off around 30%, which I don't love, but we'll talk about what happened there and what we can look forward to in 2022. I then wanna talk about 2022 as a whole and what I'm looking forward to in terms of oncology targets that we should keep an eye on, as well as those in CRISPR. And I haven't talked about CRISPR at all in breaking biotech, but that's gonna to change today. So we're gonna get into all of that. And before we do, I wanna thank everybody for continuing to support the show. Thank you for the likes and the engagement. Please continue to do so. And the more we get those numbers up, it makes it easier for me to get high profile guests or CEOs on the show. And if you have any suggestions for that, please leave it in the comments below. So with that, let's get right into it. And the first company I wanna talk about is Curious Inc. They're trading now at $3.49 a share, giving them a market cap of $320 million. Their net current assets sit at $120 million, and their Q3 net loss was $11 million. And I'm not going to belabor the details of the company again, because you can check out my last episode where I went into that a lot more. They have two main assets, CA4948, which is an IRAC4 inhibitor, and CI8993, which is a VISTA inhibitor. So looking at these two types of targets, IRAC4 being their primary program that's the most developed, Vista, where we've just seen some safety data so far. So this is the update that we saw, and they announced updated data with additional encouraging clinical activity in phase 1-2 of CA4948 monotherapy in targeted patients with relapsed or refractory AML and MDS, and they also shared initial clinical data from phase 1 study of CI8993 in patients with relapsed or refractory solid tumors. So the update that we saw in CA4948. They shared data in 13 heavily pretreated patients that had either AML or MDS, and these are high risk or very high risk. And so it's data on 13 patients, but you'll see here the total if you add them up is 15. The reason for this is that two patients had both a spliceosome mutation as well as an FLT3 mutation. So they parsed the data in a way so that you could see the effects of CA4948 on both types of populations. What we see here is that in patients with relapsed refractory AML with the spliceosome mutation, two to five patients or 40% had an objective response. And these were either complete remission or complete remission with a partial hematologic recovery. In MDS patients with the spliceosome mutation, we saw four to seven patients or 53% had an objective response. And these were all marrow complete responders. And what this means is that they were able to reduce blasts to below 5%, but the hematologic compartment of these patients has not recovered. But as we'll see, the goal here really is to get blasts down so that patients can move towards a stem cell transplantation. At least that's what the physician said on the conference call. So seeing them get into marrow CR pretty much looks like success for them. For FLT3 mutation patients, and these are AML patients, one out of three of them had a complete response or a 33% objective response. 
And now keep in mind, two of those patients had both an FLT3 and a spliceosome mutation. So this patient population, you would expect them to be more likely to have a response since CA4948 targets IRAC4 as well as FLT3. And that's something that I did not clarify in my previous episode, so apologies to anyone who might be confused there. But this molecule targets both of those proteins, which I think makes it a great candidate for AML or MDS. So overall, we see that 6 out of 13 patients had an objective response, or 46%. Now, if we compare this to what we saw in the June 2021 update, where Curious got all of this excitement, they announced then that for patients that were heavily pretreated, either AML or MDS, with the spliceosome mutation, 3 out of 4 of them had an objective response, so 75%. So I think on its face, it looks like this is quite a bit lower. This current update, the efficacy is quite a bit lower than what we saw in June of 2021, going from 75% down to 46. But we need to remember that as the patient population gets bigger, it's really expected that the objective response rate is going to go down significantly. Now, did the street potentially think that it shouldn't have gone down this much? Maybe. But for me, I think this looks pretty good in terms of efficacy and that Curious is still able to see a lot of responders in this specific patient population of spliceosome mutation. And really all we need is an objective response rate that will allow the company to get accelerated approval from the FDA. And I think this probably meets the threshold, but we're going to find out more of that later in the year. The other thing I'll say is that if you look at the duration of treatment, you can see quite clearly that it correlates very highly with a response. So patients that are treated for longer with CA4948 are more likely to have a response, and those patients that aren't classified as an objective responder have only been treated with CA4948 for like two months or so. So I have a feeling that the maturation of this data set is going to bode very well for Curious, and I'm really looking forward to seeing what this update is going to be on this data set as we get to the second half of this year. And I think that those patients that are seeing some benefit or some reduction in blasts now are going to end up moving into complete remission or marrow complete responder, depending on what the disease is. So for me, I'm very happy with this data set, and I think it's only going to look better as we get to the second half of this year. Now to move on to CI8993, this is the company's VISTA program. And it seems like people weren't sure what to expect here, but the company had mentioned multiple times that this was simply going to be a safety update because the data that was shown previously when J&J had the drug and was developing it internally is that they stopped the trial because of inability to mitigate the cytokine release syndrome that would happen when patients were treated with CI8993. So Curious had told us they were going to give us a safety update in January of this year, and that's what they shared with us today. And what they shared with us is that the company is going to be moving up to a dose of 0.6 mg per kg, which is much higher than Janssen ever got to, and that at 0.3 mg per kg in these patients, they saw 1 out of 5 that had a grade 3 leukopenia, and then 4 out of 5 of them had any grade treatment-related adverse event. And people may have been surprised to see these safety signals come out, but we knew from the start that this drug 
really had an effect to induce cytokine release syndrome, and that might actually be part of its mechanism of action in helping with cancer. So I think the one thing we need to take away from this is that they're continuing to scale up in dose in order to find that recommended phase two dose. And I think that everything else is kind of just noise, and we were expecting to see cytokine release syndrome. Adverse events come out, and that is in fact what we saw. For me, I think this is also in line with expectations, and yeah, it's unfortunate that we saw a big sell-off in cures, but right now it seems like every single company that releases data is selling off, and in this case, it's no exception for cures. So a couple things that I wanted to point out from the conference call Q&A, and one of the questions that came up was, you know, should we be expecting that patients that only have a marrow CR to move to complete remission entirely? And what the physician on the call said is that a lot of these patients, because they're very high risk, or high-risk MDS, they don't normally survive four to six months into this. And so them seeing the duration of treatment last this long is very positive for the molecule. And then they also said that the goal is really to get the blast down enough in order to get them to move on to a stem cell transplant. The other question that was asked was, you know, how many patients is the company gonna be looking to target before they're feeling comfortable to approach the FDA? And they said, reiterating their previous guidance, was that 10 to 20 patients with the spliceosome mutation is what they want. And they're in that range now with around 13 patients. I think they're going to try to get probably closer to the 20 patient area, but it seems like they're getting close to collecting that total amount. Now, because some patients are so early in the duration of treatment, I think Curious is going to want to wait longer. And my expectation is actually that they're going to have a discussion with the FDA probably in the second half of this year. And then we're hopefully going to get some guidance before the end of 2022. And I think it's going to be pretty bullish. So I'm going to continue to hold Curious for this reason as well. But if we look towards the rest of 2022, the company is guiding now that they're going to have discussion with the FDA on accelerated approval for CA4948. They're also going to report initial clinical data for CA4948 plus ibrutinib in non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Seems like they've totally stopped giving us updates for the monotherapy of CA4948. Doesn't really bode great for non-Hodgkin lymphoma, but they seem to be hopeful that in combination with ibrutinib, it's going to be better data. So I'm hopeful that that's going to be good and they're going to be reporting some of that. Now, Something I wish they had have commented on, which they didn't, is that the company has given no timeline on AML or MDS patient data without the target mutation. And if you remember in their update in June of 2021, they mentioned that 9 out of 11 patients received some benefit of CA4948 in reducing blasts, even though they weren't categorized as a complete remission or anything like that. But these early patients did start to see some benefit with the treatment. And so... For us to get you know, really excited about the potential total addressable market of this compound, it would have been nice if they could have guided and given us some insight into when they might share an update on that. Now obviously, even though they're going to be focusing on the accelerated approval only for spliceosome mutation patients, for investors to really want to invest in the company, we want to see that potential total addressable market. So I'm disappointed that they haven't shared too much on that. but. I think it's likely that they are going to share some of that at some point in this year. That's my speculation. And when we talk about the total addressable market, 
The issue is when they're focusing on spliceosome mutation patients only is that some of these spliceosome mutation patients are not usually high risk or very high risk MDS. And these patients are correlate quite nicely with high survival and they're often treated with erythropoiesis stimulating agents. So the primary concern with say the SF3B1 mutation is that it's treated with agents that treat anemia only, and they're usually not at a stage where they need to be treated with more intense chemotherapeutics or targeted agents. So for SF3B1 mutant MDS patients, they're likely not to be treated with CA4948. But on the other hand, spliceosome mutations like U2AF1, they correlate with poor prognosis, so they're probably more likely to be in the higher, very high category of MDS. So all this is to say that we have to really split hairs with these different mutations if Curis is only going to focus on spliceosome mutation MDS patients. And what we want is for them to be reaching and getting that larger total addressable market. So hopefully this year we can see AML MDS patient data that don't have a target mutation and they can see some efficacy there to hopefully broaden that out and give doctors the chance to treat that entire market of AML and MDS. So that's Curis. In terms of where I'm at with Curis, I think I'm down maybe 40% on the stock now. And what I'm probably going to look to do is to add to my position as we get deeper into 2022. I think that the updates we're going to see in the back half of 2022 are going to bode well for the company. And hopefully the XBI sentiment is going to change. And right now it's not looking good for the XBI. We're trading at like 103 right now. And every data release seems to be a sell on news, which doesn't help anything either. So I'm still hopeful. You got to have conviction in a lot of these plays. And for Curious, I definitely do. So I'm going to continue to hold. And I think that the rest of 2022 is going to bode well for the company. Now, before we get into our next topic, I want to thank our latest sponsor on Breaking Biotech, which is Info Pathways. And they are a leader in biotech IT. Many biotech startups don't think that they have the time or money to protect their data. Without a dedicated IT team, data management becomes everyone's problem. Scientists find themselves redoing work and carrying out tasks outside of their expertise. Management finds themselves struggling to find funding and meet regulatory requirements. Don't let your company set itself up for failure. Info Pathways provides data management, cybersecurity, and technology compliance services for life science firms of any size. Info Pathways specializes in clean rooms, vivariums, GMP, and GLP compliant facilities, as well as BSL 1 through 4. No environment or regulation is too complex for Info Pathways. For more information, go to infopathways.com or call 410-751-9929 to learn more. And that's infopathways.com or call 410-751-9929. And I want to thank InfoPathways for being a sponsor on the show. It does help out. The next topic I want to get to is basically oncology for 2022. And the reason why we love oncology is that it's a very hot space, but also because it's probably generated the most revenue in the biotech sector. If we think about these big antibodies that keep breaking records for revenue, something like Keytruda, other PD-1s, and there's obviously excitement around trying to get to that next Keytruda, but also we see that smaller or mid-cap biopharma companies, 
they get acquired more often when it's like an oncology company. So for us, it's important to have a good insight into what's going on in oncology. And I wanted to focus on a few trends that are in later stage development and then a few targets that are in early stage development. So for later stage oncology to watch, and unfortunately with these companies, large cap pharma is very much involved or they have assets in here already. And for those reasons, I'm more hesitant to invest only because one, I don't like investing in large cap pharma, but two, the smaller mid cap pharma, when they have to compete with large cap pharma, it makes it very difficult at the commercial stage. But the bulls could argue that if large cap pharma is involved, other large cap pharma was, is going to want to compete with them. And in order to do that, they might make an acquisition for smaller mid cap pharma that are in this space. So I think there's something to be said there and it's tough to gauge really. But the first target that I want to mention is TIGIT. TIGIT stands for T-cell immunoreceptor with immunoglobulin and ITIM domain. This molecule is present on both T as well as NK cells and they can bind to CD155 or CD112 on either antigen presenting cells or on tumor cells. And what TIGIT acts as is a checkpoint. So it's similar to PD-1 or CTLA-4 in that its action is to inhibit the immune system activity. But what makes it different from PD-1 is that it's not just the adaptive immune system for T cells, but it's also the innate immune system. So it acts to block a lot of immune function. And so if we can use some kind of antibody or some other tool to block the signaling of TIGIT, we can potentially get more immune activation. And this is super helpful when it comes to cancer. So we see that a lot, a lot of large cap pharma is already involved and already have internal programs. And they're trying to combine this molecule with already existing checkpoint inhibitors like PD-1. So we see Roche, Merck, GSK, and BMY have assets in the space, or they partnered with smaller cap companies. And the one that comes out to me is Agenis. That is a collaboration with BMY. There are some smaller mid cap companies that also have assets in this area. A Twitter favorite is Emrio, and they have a few assets, I think. The one for Tidget in particular, I think, makes the company more interesting. Then another one that sticks out to me is Arcus, and the reason for this is that Gilead is very much interested in this company. And Arcus has also a target that I'm going to talk about on the next page. But here are some companies that you could invest in, but for me, because the asset is so well-developed at this point, I don't know if I'm too interested in getting involved now. Another target, though, that I think is probably going to be the next checkpoint inhibitor is LAG3. And I think it's BMY that has a PDUFA date coming up soon, but they are very much uh, involved in LAG3 as well. All of these large cap companies, again, I think with Roche, that's the exception, or GSK, are also involved in trying to get a LAG3 inhibitor or blocker commercialized. So we see similar names here, BMY and Merck being the two that are probably the most prevalent, but we also have Novartis and Regeneron that are also involved. Now it's less heavy on the smaller mid cap size, but Agenis also shows up here. So if you wanted to get involved in these later stage oncology companies and have the lowest downside risk, Agenis might be an option. And they're also trading at around an $800 million market cap. So I think for trade idea, they might be one that's interesting here. But in general, like I said, because they're so far along in development and there's so much large pharma interest, I don't know if it's something that I want to take a position in. 
The other trend that I'm interested in, though, is the ProTac movement. And if you all remember, I had the Arvinus CEO on the show, and we talked a bit about their molecules. And that company is probably the furthest along clinically. The mechanism for these companies is they're trying to come up with a novel way of degrading proteins rather than trying to develop an inhibitor of the protein. So in this way, they can get a lot more shutting off of the signaling because they bring all of the protein activity down to like zero. I mean, that's the goal. Whereas often inhibitors can only work up to like 70% of the efficacy in stopping signaling. So ProTac has a real potential here to get more than standard inhibition. And so Arvinus I mentioned here, Chimera is one that has an IRAC4 degrader, even though they're not looking in a similar way as Curis but they're an interesting company. NRIX showed some nice data in the back half of last year, which I think is interesting, and those companies are all maybe a little bit overvalued for where they are, but I still like them, and I think that the one readout that I'm potentially gonna take a position is for Arvinus's androgen receptor product, and they're gonna be presenting data for ASCO-GU in February, so that's something to watch. C4, as well as glue, they're still preclinical mostly, so for me, I don't like investing too much in preclinical companies unless they're pretty close to having a readout. So for me, it's not really investable, but I think that I'm going to keep an eye out on Arvinus, Chimera, as well as NRIX in the ProTac space. Now to move on to earlier stage oncology, which I think is a more potentially lucrative area, even though it can be sort of dead money for a while. And even in the curious readout here, we can see that valuations can get very, very low in this space until they don't. And it's very tough to predict when that turnaround point is going to be, but I think it does take patience. So the one, obviously, that I'm interested in is IRAC4. I think Curious is going to be a big winner from now until 2022. Easy to say when the stock's trading at 52-week lows, but I think that they're going to do well in the back half of the year. I mentioned Chimera. They're not looking in oncology, they're looking more at autoimmune disease. So I think they're gonna be uh, a company to watch as well. Now DKK1 is an interesting target. Now this compound regulates wind signaling and it's often overexpressed in cancer. And we haven't heard much about this molecule until Leap Therapeutics came on the scene. And there's a number of reasons why people are excited about Leap Therapeutics. I think the one is that it's very highly owned by in institutions. It also has a very high short interest. So the potential for a short squeeze is there as well. The other thing is if you've been following any of the biopic 2022 contest that is offered on Twitter by this user Pasio, Leap Therapeutics was the highest selected ticker. So there's a lot of retail interest behind Leap Therapeutics for better or for worse. For me, I'm still on the sidelines. I haven't dove too deeply into it, but the company's looking at a number of solid tumor indications. I think the one where we've seen the most data is in gastric cancer or some kind of esophageal gastric hybrid cancer. And they saw a very high objective response rate when they were treating in combination with uh, sort of a standard of care regimen. So people are very excited about that. And they're still trading at a pretty reasonable enterprise value right now. It's probably like 100 or $200 million. So for that reason, the upside is quite huge. I believe the company is going to be doing a presentation in the week of January 10th. So we're going to see some updates there. And for better or for worse, you know, we'll see what happens. But at this stage, 
everything in the XBI seems to be selling on news and valuations continue to decline uh, whether or not it's deserved or not. So Leap Therapeutics is definitely going to be one to watch for 2022. I don't have a position and no intention of taking a position quite yet. CD73 also seems to be an interesting molecule. This one regulates adenosine homeostasis and it's also very highly expressed in tumors. So for these reasons, a lot of companies have taken an interest. There is some large cap pharma interest, BMY as well as AZN have assets in this area, but there's also a lot of smaller mid cap pharma interest. And I put Arcus here as well. And again, if you can diversify your uh, holdings between a company that's involved in numerous sort of targeted oncology, it might make for a better trade rather than trading on a company that has only a single asset. It makes the time between readouts quite a lot longer and then more difficult maybe to realize the value. So I kind of like Arcus for this reason, but there are a number of other smaller mid-cap biotechs that have assets in CD73. So those are the oncology targets that I'm going to be watching for. I'm sure there's a million other ones that are out there that I haven't touched on. So if there's one that you think I'm missing out on, please let me know in the comments below. The last thing I want to talk about is really CRISPR, but the other trends that I wanted to mention before we get to the final topic of today, I've categorized these in sort of established trends as well as new trends. And by new, they're not really new, but they're sort of immature at this stage where I think there is a lot of upside. So established trends, CRISPR, the story continues to evolve here. These are the main companies that have assets in the space. I'm going to be talking about each one of these in the next few slides. Nash is going to be very exciting for 2022. The reason for that is that Madrigal has a readout that should be coming at any moment. It's a phase three for their NAFLD indication, and we're likely to see a pretty big impact of their drug on uh, fatty liver disease in particular. The tougher readouts are in Nash, but we're going to see some kind of uh, associated readouts related to Nash. So it, it all does sort of combine together to make the story. So I'm looking forward to that. I do have a position in Madrigal. 89Bio also has a readout coming up in mid-January, and I might take a position in that just for a swing, especially with the Madrigal readout coming as well. I think the whole Nash space might become bullish in 2022 for that reason. So we'll see, but I'm looking forward to seeing the Madrigal readout. Gene therapy is a space that I like and I think is going to have a lot to deliver on in 2022. These are some companies that are in the space. I'm only invested in Regenix Bio right now. Unicure got hammered last year, so for a turnaround story, you might be, will, might be interested in investing in them. They saw some less than impressive data in Huntington's disease, I believe. So really, the value of the company is in their asset in hemophilia, and some people see a limited potential there given the competition in the space. Sangamo is going to have a big readout this year with their hemophilia asset. And for Biomarin, we should see an update in the durability of their gene therapy for hemophilia as well. So that'll be interesting to watch for 2022. For some new emerging trends that I think will be interesting, the microbiome space was pretty much hammered. Every company that had a readout in microbiome sold off tremendously. The data was less impressive there, but I think that for upside potential, these companies probably have the most, with the exception of synthetic biology maybe. But for microbiome, uh, if we can see some turnaround in any of these companies, I think that the space could see a lot of life breathed into it. MCRB is probably the most developed company, but there's a lot of them out there now, so I'm probably speaking out of turn when I say that. But 
MCRB and FBRX saw a big downside in 2021, so they might be ones to look forward to for a turnaround in 2022. Psychedelics are also an interesting space. Compass had a readout, I believe it was Q4 of last year, where the stock kind of sold off on the news, but it wasn't that negative. I think in general, though, the space is made complicated by the fact that there's a lot of regulatory hurdles around treating patients with illegal psychedelic drugs. So that hurdle makes it much more difficult to get a drug approved on the market. But I think once the data becomes compelling enough, it will behoove the regulators to push for less regulation, less stringent regulation of these compounds so that they could be treating in a therapeutic setting. And I think there's a big activist movement around psychedelics that maybe other areas don't have. So for that reason, I think it's potential that we can move to a space where those drugs can be regulated in a way where they can be treated to patients that need them. Another space that I think is going to continue to develop is the synthetic biology space. It seems like every week there's a story about ginkgo in the news. And even though this company has still a pretty high valuation, there's others like Absci, and I had the CEO on last year, that are starting to develop. And they had a really nice deal recently signed with Merck for Absci to help out with some of their uh, development efforts. So I think that that's very interesting, and I'm going to be continuing to keep an eye out on that. So to wrap up the show, I want to talk about all of those CRISPR companies. And the reasons why I neglected to really focus on CRISPR was that I thought they were all going after diseases that already had treatments that were further along in the pipeline. So for me, investing in a new mechanism to treat a disease that already has similar treatments in the gene therapy space didn't quite make sense. But I'll be the first to admit that I was totally wrong and I had no idea that they would get so much interest from hedge funds, the CRISPR companies I'm referring to, I had no idea they would get so much interest from hedge funds and retail investors to really bloat these valuations to the highs that they got to. And that was really the story for 2021. I think all of these companies saw their all-time highs in 2021, and the stories for most of them ended up being that all of the data releases that they saw led to sell-offs. And that wasn't true for one company, which is Intelia. And this is the one company that was up 100% year-to-date in 2021. And the reason for this was that they saw early success with their in vivo CRISPR interim data readout in ATTR amyloid doses. And this is a, a disease whereby amyloid is built up in different organs. And it's a simple sort of mechanism whereby if you inhibit the precursor gene that could lead to the amyloid production, you can then reduce the burden of amyloid. And here what they did is they had an edit in the TTR gene, and with this they were able to reduce the amount of serum TTR of up to 96% with a single dose treatment of NTLA-201. So pretty interesting, I think the things to take away here is that it was an in vivo treatment, so they're not taking out cells, editing them, and putting them back into patients, they're literally treating patients with the guide RNA. Ex vivo treatments come with a lot more hurdles around them, and we know this from the CAR-T space. All the companies that are trying to do ex vivo editing are gonna have a lot of costs associated with them that is gonna be burdensome for patients as well as the company itself. So having an in vivo CRISPR product I think is very attractive. Now the company is now at a $8 billion market cap and they only have $700 million in net current assets. So 
you want to talk about potential downside, I would say it rests in Intelia right now, even though there's a lot of anticipation for the readouts for 2022. They're going to be presenting updated data in this program in particular in the first quarter of this year. So if you're bullish on the company, then take a position. I'm not going to touch Intelia. I think that the potential for downside is way too high here, even though, like I mentioned, there's tons of excitement around CRISPR. And this one company is the one that continues to see pretty good success so far. So the odds of them sort of emerging as the leader in the space right now is a lot higher. To move on to CRISPR Therapeutics, they were a hot name because they were one of the early ones to get a partnership with Vertex in their, I think it's, yeah, the hematologic disorders that they are treating. The stock is down 40% in 2021. They're now trading at a $5 billion market cap, but they have a lot of cash, $2.5 billion in net current assets. And their furthest along programs, there's two of them. One is CTX001, which is an autologous CRISPR edited stem cell transplantation product. And so, like I said, this is the collaboration with Vertex. They're looking in beta thalassemia as well as sickle cell disease, and they were able to show early efficacy in inducing fetal hemoglobin expression. And most of the treatments surround trying to induce fetal hemoglobin expression because of how well it tends to work in patients that have beta thalassemia or sickle cell disease. So a lot of the value of the company is in this asset in particular. And the reason for this is that their CTX110 product, which is an allergenic CAR-T product, they saw a nice objective response rate in large B-cell lymphoma with not too bad CRS induction. It was better than their competitors with some grade one and grade two CRS. And comparing this to the traditional companies that do CAR-T, this is a lot better. The issue though, is that the complete responses go from 38% to 21% after six months of being treated. And we don't necessarily know why, but there's something about the off the shelf CAR T therapies or this CRISPR therapy that doesn't lead to as much durability compared to say, Yaskarta or other CAR T companies. So for this reason, the company I think got hammered on that news and it's gonna to be tough for them to overcome. I think all of these companies that are in the space that have durability issues need to figure out a path forward, whether it's redosing or something like that. I think they will figure it out, but it's gonna take some time. And until then, I think the valuations will be suppressed, at least for these types of assets. Now, the one thing with CRISPR is they do have a lot of cash and they do have a big pipeline, but we don't necessarily know what the 2022 timeline is gonna look like for these readouts. So I'm going to be watching their 2021 earnings report to seeing how that gets clarified. Editus is another CRISPR company, and they are down 70% in 2021. Their focus is more on ophthalmology, even though they have some assets in other areas that are more preclinical, but the company is now trading at a $1.7 billion market cap with $500 million in net current cash. And now the reason why they lost so much in their valuation was that they saw an efficacy upset in their one product, Edit 101. And this is an in vivo CRISPR treatment similar to Intelia, but they're focused on ophthalmology. So it was a subretinal injection. And we know subretinal injections aren't great. There's a lot of issues with them clinically. But in their subretinal injection in, for the treatment of LCA10, they saw pretty minimal efficacy. I think only three patients they had data for, and only one of them tended to have some kind of benefit from it. So for those reasons, the stock sold off quite a bit. 
The timeline for 2022 isn't super clear, so I'm also going to be looking for their earnings report to see um, how that's going to look. But of these three companies that are actual clinical CRISPR companies, Editas has the most upside for the reasons I just outlined. They're trading at only $1.7 billion market cap, and they have a decent cash position. The one that is the most to lose is Intellia, so it's anyone's guess how 2022 is going to shape up. But in terms of preclinical CRISPR companies, I want to talk about these guys because Beam in particular has a huge valuation for where they're at. Now, this stock is down only 20% in 2021, which is kind of surprising, but they have a $5 billion market cap with around $840 million in net current assets. The company is still preclinical, but the bullish news, at least what the bulls will say, is that they finally got IND approval for Beam 101, which is a treatment, it's a base editing treatment in sickle cell disease. Now, this is again just an ex vivo autologous stem cell transplantation technique, but they're using their base editing technology to edit these cells taken ex vivo. For me, I don't quite get why this gets a $5 billion valuation other than the fact it's very retail driven and there's some hedge fund interest like say Kathy Wood's hedge fund. The company is continuing to do IND enabling studies for Beam 102 as well as Beam 201. And Beam 102 is another ex vivo autologous stem cell therapy where they're trying to edit the sickling hemoglobin gene to this other type of hemoglobin gene. And then Beam 201 is an allergenic CAR T therapy, and they're doing four different base edits here. Potentially could be better than the standard of care, but remains to be seen. And they're not even going to get in the clinic until either late 2022 or 2023. So I think Beam, among all of the CRISPR companies, probably has the most to lose given where they are in the clinic. Now, another preclinical company that I think might be investable if you compare it to the other companies is Caribou. And they've really been flat since their IPO in July of 2021. They saw you know, a rise in 2021, but since then it's declined quite a bit since the XBI has continued to sell off. They're sitting at only an $800 million market cap with $430 million in net current assets. And their furthest along program is CB010. It is a PD-1 knockout CAR-T. So rather than the standard CAR-T where they modify that receptor, they're also knocking out PD-1. And this, as we know, the anti-PD-1 antibodies have such a good effect, potentially knocking out PD-1 in a CAR-T therapy could also add to the efficacy here. So I'm kind of curious to see how this is going to look. And they're treating in relapsed or refractory B-cell non-Hodgkin lymphoma, pretty simple cancer, and they're expected to have data in 2022. So I think here that they're likely to see positive data and whether or not there's going to be durability issues compared to similar to what we've talked about with CRISPR therapeutics, I don't know if we're really going to see that data yet. Instead, what we might see is just the top line uh, objective response rate. Presumably, this is going to be a single arm trial. And I think that it's probably going to impress. And given that the company's trading at only a $400 million enterprise value, I think the upside is quite large here. So I'm going to be looking to see how they lay out the timeline in their 2021 earnings report and then look to take a position before the data release in 2022, specifically for this CB010 readout. I think it'll probably impress given where the expectations are for these companies. Caribou is also filing INDs for other ex vivo applications. So overall, I think if I were to invest, I'm looking at Caribou as an investment. Editus, 
it's just without the success in these early programs, it's tough to justify, especially in a space like ophthalmology where there's so many good therapies out there right now. Intellia might be good only because since they're starting to see this initial success, the likelihood of more success is probable. But since we're in a space right now where any news update seems to be a sell-off, I feel like Intellia has the most to lose. Beam, because they're preclinical, I think they could also begin to trade closer to their cash valuation unless they're going to start to see clinical data. But they're not starting their clinical program for Beam 101 until Q2 of this year. So we're probably not going to see data until maybe the end of 2022 or 2023. So for me, I'm thinking about a position in Caribou once we get clarification on that timeline. But CRISPR is an exciting space and I'm excited to see what is going to develop for this year. Now for upcoming readouts for me, I'm looking at Madrigal for their phase three trial in NAFLD. Checkpoint Therapeutics should have a data readout soon. KPTI as well. Replamine has readouts for Q1. Biogen has the NCD draft decision coming anytime. PDSB also has a phase two readout for head and neck cancer with HPV 16 positive patients. And then BTAI also has a PUFA in April, I believe. And I'm gonna be adding to that position. To talk about my portfolio, I reorganized it for 2022. And as you can see, all my positions are red. We have been getting killed lately in the XBI. The only green position I have is Acadia. And it is what it is. So overall, I'm sitting at negative eight, which is in line with the IBB as well as the XBI. ArcG is at around negative 12 so far, and it's only been one week into the year, which you love to see. The whole market as a whole has been selling off though. So SPY is sitting at negative two, Q is sitting at negative five, and then IWM is sitting at negative three. So I changed up what I'm gonna be watching this year. I changed the Dow Jones to the Russell 2000 since the XBI is a part of the Russell 2000. So I think it's like maybe 15% or so of all of the biotech stocks are part of IWM. So it makes sense for us to watch that as well. In terms of position weight, I'm highest with Biogen, highest with Madrigal, as well as ALX Oncology and Regenix Bio. So Madrigal, I will likely sell my position once we get that readout. I don't wanna hold until the Q4 readout, which is gonna be the Nash one. It's gonna be dead money until then, I think. So I'm probably gonna to look to sell. Biogen might be a similar thing, depending on what this NCD decision is. I'm gonna to look to shake up my position there. ALX Oncology and Regenix Bio, I'm gonna be holding for probably more long-term. And then I've talked about all the other ones, but as I make changes, I will announce it on Twitter. So please follow me at Matthew Lapoire, and you can also send me an email at matthewlapoire at gmail.com. So with that, I'm gonna wrap it up, but I wanna thank everybody for your attention. Let me know what you think about my oncology ideas or my CRISPR takes, and let me know where you think I'm off. And with that, I'm gonna wrap it up, but thanks again, everybody, and we'll see you next time.